Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. This March, I'll be launching a special run of episodes called Theory in the Flesh. I borrow the term Theory in the Flesh from and with gratitude to our feminist and QTPOC elders to draw attention to the health inequalities and disparities experienced by queer black people in the UK. Theory in the Flesh is made possible because of funding from the British Podcast Awards Fund and the Wellcome Trust, and they have created a survey to better understand listener appetite for health and research-related podcast content. I would be so grateful if you could take a few minutes to fill out the survey. Alongside showing support for Busy Being Black, you'll be able to enter yourself into a draw for tickets to this year's British Podcast Awards. Head to podcastviews.com to fill out the anonymous and data-protected survey. UK Black Pride is Europe's largest celebration for LGBTQ people of African, Asian, Caribbean, Latin American, and Middle Eastern descent. And our annual celebration of our cultures, lives, and lived experiences is on Sunday, the 7th of July, at our new home in Hagerston Park. LGBTQ people of color have long played a defining role in this liberation movement. And UK Black Pride is a day for us to celebrate and acknowledge the tremendous contributions our people have made to not only LGBTQ life here in the UK, but around the world. UK Black Pride is a protest, a celebration, and a movement, and we are so excited to share this day with you all. We'll see you at UK Black Pride 2019 from 12 p.m. on Sunday, the 7th of July at our new home in Hagerston Park. Busy Being Black is the podcast exploring how we live in the fullness of our queer black lives. These are conversations at our intersections and an opportunity for us to hear firsthand from others in our community how they have learned and are learning to thrive. If you like what you hear, please take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe. Doing so lets others like us hear the voices amplified here. In a ruling in Jason Jones v. Trinidad and Tobago, Justice Devendra Rampersad said this, the court feels compelled to state in conclusion that it is unfortunate when society in any way values a person or gives a person their identity based on their race, color, gender, age, or sexual orientation. That is not their identity. That is not their soul. That is not the total value of society or their value to themselves. To now deny a perceived minority their rights to humanity and human dignity would be to continue this type of thinking, this type of perceived superiority based on the genuinely held beliefs of some. As a result, this court must and will uphold the Constitution to recognize the dignity of even one citizen whose rights and freedoms have been invalidly taken away. 
I was on a bustling street in Soho, hugging my friend Liam as he cried with joy reading that ruling. Trinidad and Tobago's highest court had just ruled that sections of the Sexual Offenses Act were indeed unconstitutional. For Liam, it was a moment that couldn't come soon enough. Like many, his family encouraged him to move abroad so he could live as himself. Well, today I'm in conversation with Jason Jones, the intrepid activist who filed the historic lawsuit in the High Court of Trinidad and Tobago and who successfully challenged the constitutionality of sections 13 and 16 of the Sexual Offenses Act. We begin our conversation at the moment Liam and I read the ruling and wind through Jason's fascinating and globetrotting life. From singing Neil Diamond on the beach with Nina Simone to changing homophobic laws across two continents, Jason Jones is living proof of how the world can change when even just one of us recognizes our inherent potential and value and when we embark on future-defining journeys with tenacity, drive, and ambition. The scope, scale, and impact of Jason's work really cannot be repeated enough. I am so honored to share this conversation with you. I'm Josh Rivers, and I'm Busy Being Black with Jason Jones. I'm honestly, I'm so honored to share this space with you. Um, I was, um, when the ruling came through, I was with my friend Liam and we got in a, the news alert that, you know, the ruling had come through and we stopped and we were in the middle of Soho and started reading the ruling. And as Liam was reading the ruling, he started crying and then I started crying and then we just embraced. And in that moment, like two little brown boys were just it's sharing that moment together and it's just it was so remarkable to be next to him Liam's from Trinidad yes it was so I felt so honored to be standing next to him and to, just to be holding him while he cried about this and mm -hmm. so I really am truly honored to share this space with you thank I think you. what you've done is is utterly remarkable thank you so much uh, it's a it's a great honor for me to be here and talking to everyone can we I, I feel like we're gonna go deep so, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'd like us to just hold this joy for a moment and and honor that achievement. Um, and I understand that, you know, things change and, you know, there's still much more work to be done. But I'd like us to hold this space for a moment. And can you take me back to the moments that that ruling came through, that, that you became aware that the judge had ruled in your favor? Well, uh, obviously, the journey had started three years previously when I first instructed uh, my legal team to take this on. So I pretty much walked up the steps that morning knowing that I was going to win at some level uh, to understand the legal ease of it. The, I, I had challenged the law, and I was focusing on six points that constitutionally that law was impinging on my human rights. We expected that we would win on a couple of them, but never all six. That was mind-blowing. So sat there in court um, when we started to realize how big a victory this was. Uh, the legal team looked over at me, in particular Peter Laverick, who was the architect of all of this, and we nodded at each other knowing that this was the biggest moment in LGBT history 
not only in the English-speaking Caribbean, but across the Commonwealth, because, of course, this predated the Indian Supreme Court uh, judgment. So at the point, this was the largest thing to happen in the Commonwealth for decades. When we walked out of court, uh, it was to joyous pandemonium. You know, I tell people that day, hearing LGBT people, they made a noise that was the sound of freedom. It was a scream and a shriek of utter joy at being free. It was really phenomenal and incredibly moving. And me and Peter and a friend travel around to different venues, LGBT venues, LGBT spaces, over the next couple of hours. And whenever we walked in, this sound erupted from people. And it was, that was the moment that you knew that it wasn't just a constitution of a country that you were changing. You were actually changing the hearts and minds of the people that were affected by it. You know, a lot, of, a lot of LGBT organizations were very against me doing this. They said I would fail. And I think their argument was mainly about, you know, con these kinds of legal challenges don't really change hearts and minds. But what they ignored the fact of was the changing of the hearts and minds of our own people. Wow. That's where the key change happened. You know, these were people that were homophobic against themselves. So when you have this right being given to you, where you are no longer an unapprehended criminal, where you can hold your head up without shame, that was the hearts and minds that needed to be changed, not the people that are fighting against us. You know, Oprah Winfrey says constantly about racist white people, you just need to let the dinosaurs die. <laughs> You're not going to change these people. Mm. So I'm not very focused on changing you know, a, a heart and a mind that's cold and black and racist or homophobic or transphobic. Let them die out. That's my grandparents. My grandparents were those type of people. My grandparents from the east end of London went to their graves denying that me and my brother existed. They said that my mother was a spinster living in the Caribbean. So you know, I come from that background. I, I have family that have closed minds and cold, dark hearts. I'm not going to try and change anybody else. If I can't change my grandparents, what hope is there for me to change the average Joe Blow in right, right. the north of, of, of England? So I think you know this community work is being so ignored by the big organizations in their plush offices and their high salaries. Yeah, because so much of, of the dominant narrative mm is that we must be able to sit across from people who disagree with us, who would have us hung, stoned, killed, murdered, um, who don't think that we're as human as they are, if yeah. at all. And we're constantly encouraged to sit across from these people and to put ourselves in harm, harm's way as an act of civic responsibility, yeah. as it the, were. The and strategy so I think what is you're reactive. Saying, right. The strategy is always reactive. Something is done to us, and then they react. So if well, you, and it prioritizes white people mm, in that, absolutely, right? Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And you know, in terms of community activism, there's very little of it happening. And even us who are active in the community, you know, we get this constant pushback because we're not NGOized and we don't have all of this stuff backing us up. And, you know, a simple thing like coming together it becomes a huge issue. Where do you come together? How do you come together? 
who are the leaders, who are the voices, how, do you, how is that space inhabited by us? We've kind of lost that sense of community. I'm curious what you think is perhaps going wrong within the space, both at a micro and a macro level. Well, C.L.R. James, you know, the great writer C.L.R. James from Trinidad and Tobago, he was very friendly with my mother and my stepfather. So I used to sit in his kitchen not listening to him. I mean, I could <laughs> kick myself now. But uh, he made some very quite poignant statements about how identity and the pursuing of this, ide- this idea of identity is actually going to destroy us. So for him, you know, he, he refers to Shakespeare. He refers to, to European texts and European culture as informing what he speaks about and what he writes about in his, his own time. Now, if you were going to force a black identity and say, oh, well, then we're going to ignore those European influences, then you're actually shooting yourself in the foot. This is what he's saying. So you have to, at the one side of trying to find who you are and your place on this planet, by the same token, you are informed by your environment. You are informed by history. All of those things have a huge play within your makeup. And I think this identity politic has so overwhelmed us that we have become very disconnected. So you have the the rise of feminism and black power and gay rights in the late 60s in North America, which spread across the globe. And those three movements were very united at that point. And then within three years of the Stonewall riots, we had a trans woman of color being booed off of the Pride stage in New York. Mm -hmm. How do you go from her throwing bricks at Stonewall to three years later being booed off the stage? So we have to look very carefully about this, this idea of forcing your identity and forging an identity that uh, discriminates. It actually does discriminate. Yeah, and it seems to me that, that everyone wants to be the preeminent voice of a community, mm. which doesn't leave room for multiple people to come Absolutely. up at the same time and therefore Absolutely. perhaps links to this, this inability to recognize the intersectionality of our movement, that the, the essential intersectionality of our movement. A simple thing like adding brown and black stripes yeah. to the pride flag becomes yes. an enormous issue. Yes. And, you know, I, I, I don't know if you were there at the 20th memorial of the Admiral Duncan bombings. It was quite shocking how overly white it was, but how the queer white community completely ignored the fact that the black and Pakistani community had been bombed as well, you know? So when you have a conversation about why it's important to have brown and black stripes on the pride flag, here is a prime example of how we all were targeted by fascist hatred, and yet we can't even add these two colors to our pride flag? Mm. What pride is there? Come on. That's not pride. No, it's not. That's encouraging the hate. So, you know, it, it really is a case of identity politics has gone way out of control. And how we come together as a community, and let, don't get me wrong, you know, I, I'm not one of these kumbaya, you know, let's all sit around the campfire singing no. lovely songs. I never had that impression. I, I'm not. <laughs> you know, I, I actually enjoy going to a black event where it's predominantly black people. You know, I come from a black country. You know, my entire family, except for my white mother, 
the entire family, all of my friends in my country were black. You know, that was it. Has your mother been supportive? Uh, do you, how do you identify? Mm. Mixed race, okay. person of color. Okay, okay. But, and you does, know, does your mother, mother support that kind of, that identity as it were? My mother taught me what it meant to be black. A white woman taught me what it meant to be black. Okay, go on. Uh, when we were about 11, uh, my parents had split up and my mom was bringing us up alone. So, you know, she was holding down three jobs in a country where she had no family. Um, my father was a very well-known black man. So once she was not with him, she was no longer protected, you know. Mm. So she's alone on this island with two half-black kids. Um, no support networks. And, you know, there's no kind of government support. We don't have that kind of social net, social support from in the government system. So she held down three jobs. And we lived in a very small apartment on the edge of what would be called a ghetto. It was a village, you know. And that village didn't have running water. So the river was the center of the village. Um, you bathe there, you wash your clothes, you hang out, you know, gossip. Everything happened at the river. So me and my brother used to go down to the river to play with the kids in the neighborhood. You know, we're neighborhood kids. We just happened to be a little bit more light-skinned. This would be 1976, about six years after the Black Power Revolution in Trinidad in 1970, when black people were fighting for their rights. Mm -hmm. As a black person, you couldn't get a job in a bank. That's how racist it was. So the Saga boys, what we call Saga boys, who are like young black men, you know, coming out of this black power movement, you know, the Afro picking the Afro, mm -hmm. you know, that kind of guy. They were standing by the river and said that me and my brother couldn't hang out at the river anymore because we are black. Right. So, of course, we go crying back to mom. Mommy, the black boys say we, the saga boys say we can't lie in the river. She said, what? She grabbed the two of us, dragged us down to the river, said, put one foot in the river. So we put one foot in the river and one foot is on the river bank. She shouts up at the Saga boys, You see these two mother-ass children? There's half black. Look one foot in the river. What are you going to do about it? <laughs> we never had problems again. You know, they got it. Mm. She got it. But she told us, you know, a couple of years afterwards that uh, our experience being mixed race is something that she could never you know, help us with. It's a journey that we had to navigate on our own. But that moment that moment of belonging firmly in my country, you know, one foot in the river, made me very aware of what my place was. So it really took her to, to give me that empowerment. And is there a, a similarly foundational experience that gave you the courage, the guts, the bravery to take on the government in Trinidad? I mean, I, I'm, I'm very blessed with my background in Trinidad. My, my father was the first black television announcer in the entire global south. He uh, signed on Trinidad and Tobago Television, our national television station, on the night of our independence in 1962. So my dad was like the, the most famous black man on the island. He was better known than the prime minister because he came into people's homes every night at 7 p.m. reading the news. And then my mom uh, married Rex LaSalle, who was a lieutenant in the army. He was one of the first black recruits to go to Sandhurst. And Rex was, uh, in the 1970 Black Power Revolution, he was ordered by the prime minister to go into 
the square where black power people were gathering to fight for their rights and use live ammunition to clear the square. So, you know, I come from a background of, of, of these kinds of very powerful black men who have made huge inroads culturally, politically, and stand up for their rights. You know, it would not be unusual for the mighty sparrow to be sat on our gallery drinking and singing songs. So, you know, I had this incredible power, powerful black people around me. You know, Nina Simone came to Trinidad and she was staying with my theater director. And Nina at the time was in a lesbian relationship with, a, with her manageress from the United States. And her brother had just stolen all of her money. So she was broke, had a terrible coke and alcohol habit and was just couch surfing wherever she could, anywhere in the world. Wow. She was having terrible fights with her manageress. And my director, I was, I was the only person of, uh, who had a car and had the time to spend with Nina. So she would, my theater director, Helen Camps, would say, Jason, get Nina a house. Just take her anywhere, right? So I used to sit on the beach in Trinidad we, did, we, we realized we had this love of Neil Diamond, singing Neil Diamond songs to each other. With Nina Simone. With Nina Simone. All right now. And, you know, years later, after that, that period of three weeks with Nina Simone, I, I met her again here in London when she was doing a, 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 a concerts at Ronnie Scott's. And it's only then that it started to kind of dawn on me the incredibly powerful people I've had that have shaped my life. Mm. And it definitely made me feel, at that point, Clause 28 came in in London, and I had just moved to London, and I was escaping this very um, toxic, homophobic environment. And then all of a sudden, Clause 28 happens. So, you know, the place I came to for safety all of a sudden was no longer safe again. So that really kind of, all of that germinated into making me very active and very vocal and standing up. And you speak truth to power as well. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which I think, um, I can't imagine how unfavored you are. <laughs> well, Because you know. one thing white people hate is a mouthy black person. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's where my uh, light skin privilege comes in. Right. And uh, also, I'm, I've, I've been blessed with, you know, wonderful education. Or, or I, can't, I cannot be more grateful for, for how I was raised and the luck that I've had in the things that I've been able to see and be part of and achieve. You know, I, 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 one of the things that people don't know about me is in 1998, me and my then partner, who's also from Trinidad, we were part of a team that changed the law here in the United Kingdom so that the overseas partner of a British subject could get uh, the right of abode. That was the first positive gay legislation in England and Wales post-decriminalization 30 wow. years previously. So I've changed the law in two countries. Go on. <laughs> that, for me, you know, I think what we, what we don't do as a community is that kind of introspection. When you have a gap of decriminalization in 67, a gap of 30 years when nothing happens in a country like England and Wales and Scotland didn't decriminalize till 1980. What the hell is going on? We don't ask. I don't understand how our community does not ask 
how there can be a gap of nothing for 30 years. What were we doing? It's like we get thrown this bone of decriminalization, and I think, all right, fags, you know, run off and do whatever it is you do in the bushes. That's not what we should be doing. We should be immediately fighting for more. So one of the things that I am working on now is what happens after I have final victory at the Privy Council. My final victory at the Privy Council will decriminalize between 7 and 11 countries. Whoa. So <laughs> <laughs> how, how does that work? So how, how is it that what the decision that's made at the Privy Council has can resonate in yes. 7 to 11 countries? Yeah, there are seven countries where my victory will have immediately affected their uh, laws because they have the Privy Council as their Supreme Court as well. Ah, okay. The other three countries are English-speaking Caribbean countries who have the CCJ, Caribbean Court of Justice, as their Supreme Court, but the CCJ nearly always follows a Privy Council ruling. So if all the others fall, they're not going to hold on to it. And there have been comments being made slowly since Billy's and my victory that the region has to look at getting rid of these laws. So... By the time I'm finished, I will have effectively decriminalized over 55 million people in the world. How does that feel to say that? I knew going in that that was the dream. You know, I'm a big dreamer. Mm, apparently I, so. I, think, <laughs> I think people, I think people, people come up to me now, three years later, and they're just like, you know, I was sat there listening to you going on and on. I was just like, this, this man is nuts. That kind of stuff doesn't happen in the real world. You know, what is he on about? One of the big things that has happened since the victory has been the empowerment of citizens in understanding their right as a mm. citizen. People did not even know that they could take their country to court. Wow. Yeah. That's a basic. Of course. Why would the government let you know? Yeah. No, exactly. They're not going to let yeah. you know that. Yeah. And also, in former colonies of Britain, we have what is called savings clauses in our constitutions. After we became independent, our, our governments, our newly independent government, inserted into the constitution something called a savings law clause. So you cannot challenge any law that predates our independence in court. Oh, white people are so pernicious, aren't Thank they? Thank you. <laughs> so, you know, it, there's so many uh, stumbling blocks and, 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 and blocks for our rights as citizens that people don't even understand the basic rights that they have as a human being. I constantly say this about the, the Caribbean region. We are the only region on the planet that has suffered 500 years of successive human rights abuses. There's nowhere else on the world that has had it. So when you go from slavery, then to indentured laborship, then to colonialization, over 500 years, the citizens have been so dehumanized for centuries mm. that how can I, as a queer man, ask a black man for my human rights when he doesn't even know what human rights is and he doesn't have it for himself? If he and I go for a job in Port of Spain, I will get it. Because I'm light-skinned, right? And forget education, right? Just the fact that I'm light-skinned. If he and I go for the same job, I will get it. So how can I ask him for my rights when he has none himself? 
So for us in that region, we're starting pretty much at ground zero. You know, when I walked out of court, it was a landmark moment for democracy, not just for LGBT. People were just like, okay, so that bullet man do anything, but how the hell he did that? Mm. I get messages constantly from straight people saying, um, can you advise me how to legalize marijuana? You know, <laughs> people are now like, oh, wait, I can do this. Yeah, I've got power. Yeah. And that is the big story here. And that is what I think we're missing a trick on. And we mustn't let pe white people take away the power. You know, the white organizations around the world have been trying to take away my power. Talk to me more about that. Well, they all thought I would lose. You know, I have to, you know, give a very big up shout to Peter Laverick, young uh, lawyer who came up with a strategy to get around the savings clause. Everybody thought the savings law clause was it. There's no way I could challenge these laws. They're British colonial era buggery laws. He found the loophole. And when I took on my legal team in Trinidad, you know, one of, one of my legal team teaches constitutional law. And he said, no, Jason, this is impossible. You cannot do this. Forget it. I teach constitutional law, blah, blah, blah. Right. But Peter found a way. And that, again, is indicative of how the generational gap, you know, where you can have a, a senior counsel who teaches constitutional law not listen to a young gay lawyer, you know, who thinks he's found a way around it. He's not, he wasn't even willing to listen. I said, no, you must read this, you know, because I'm not a lawyer. If it makes sense to me, it will make sense to you, mm. right? And he, when he read it, he said, okay, I'm on board. Wow. You know, so that whole idea of um, not listening to young people, not listening to new ideas, it's pervasive in our community. It's pervasive in our strategy about things. So the white-led organizations across the world refuse to support my, my challenge. The local LGBT organizations in the Caribbean refuse to support my challenge. Not only did they refuse to support it, but they actively worked against it by poisoning my, my name, poisoning the character of my, my legal counsel. I mean, my lead counsel, Richard Jabba QC, is a white, straight Englishman. But the reason is he has the second highest of successful appearances before the Privy Council. Wow. Right? I chose the best person for the job. Right? So, of course, they tried to turn it into this narrative of, oh, white knight coming in to save the black people. Well, you know, if the white knight has the tools yeah. and knows what he's doing, <laughs> you can save me, darling. I'm good. I'll be safe. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So it, you, I was fighting literally everyone. Everyone. I mean, uh, the middle class queer community in the Caribbean were literally screaming, sit down, you're rocking the boat. Yeah, because this, you know, this this would upset assimilation mm. and quote unquote integration, mm. which is never what it appears to be anyway. It's yeah. fallacious. Yeah. So y your victory and indeed the victory of LGBTQ people in the region um, is actually a rather damning indictment against the organizations being paid to do this work in the in the region, would you say that's true? Absolutely. Uh, the Human Dignity Trust, an organization created in Britain specifically to do this kind of work, uh, their legal director said that this case would fail, and they refused to support my case. So she advised their board, do not support Jason Jones. It's going to fail. Guess what she is now? She's now the executive director. She got a promotion. 
That's wild. But she was wrong. She was wrong. <laughs> she gets a promotion. Right. Right? She's white, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, if this was, I mean, I come from a background of sales and marketing. That's where my bread and butter was for years, you know, just boring sales and marketing. If somebody was not doing their job or making mistakes like that, they'd be fired, mm. not promoted. Mm. Watch so whiteness work. How are you having <laughs> an LGBT organization that is getting literally hundreds of thousands of pounds of funding to do the work that I am doing? And they can't even tell whether I'm going to win or not. In fact, they say I'm not going to win. Did any of the mainstream organizations funded to do work in the region support you? Nobody. Nobody. Are, Absolutely nobody. Are any of the mainstream organizations funded to do that work in the region supporting you now? Nobody. Nobody. Because I'm, I'm now a victim of my own success. They are so ashamed of the victory and the fact that they got it wrong that now they're no platforming me. So it's like, you know, well, we're, we're going to ignore that. It's that bad. It's that bad. Oh. I mean, when you have an organization like Stonewall, who has, I think, three full-time members of staff in their international department, a war chest of over five million pounds sitting in a bank waiting for what war, I don't know, who have not contacted me once, not once, to say, you know, can we at least pay your bus fare, you know, to get to court? Nothing. Not a single thing. Wow. Um, no organization except for Frontline AIDS, who I, I continue to have a good relationship with. But outside of that HIV AIDS organization, no LGBT organization has assisted me anywhere on this planet. Not, not a thing. Not a, not a penny, not even a, a letter of gratitude or a mention of thanks. Nothing. I don't know why I'm so shocked I shouldn't be. You know, I think it really is one of these points of history where it's unfolding right before your eyes. And it almost kind of is a runaway train and it just has to happen. I think that after the victory at the Privy Council, because I will win at the Privy Council, you know, the Privy Council judgment is really looking at the original judgment and saying yes or no. Right. And that original judgment is so powerful that there's no way the Privy Council is going to go against it. I mean, that judgment helped the Indian Supreme Court case. We have Kenya coming up later this month. My judgment will be mentioned in that. So it's such a powerful judgment that it will, it will stand the test of time. It's being taught in law schools now. My case is now being taught in law schools in Toronto, Uni University of West Indies, and in London. So let's just let, let's drive that point home. <laughs> this judgment came through on the 17th or 12th, 18th, 12th, 12th of, of April, April, 2018. Yeah. And just over a year later, that judgment or that case is already being taught in oh, yeah. law schools around the world. Absolutely. It's wow. that important. And is also informing emergent... Um, I mentioned twice in the Supreme Court ruling. So, yeah. you know, it, it is incredibly important. And the other thing of note to explain why the Privy Council is so important, there are three, in the democratic world, the three most important Supreme Courts, the U.S. Supreme Court, Indian Supreme Court, and the Privy Council. So this will be the first time that the Privy Council will hear an LGBT decriminalization case in its history. 
And my case, my victory there will decriminalize two continents because uh, the countries that are being decriminalized are in both the south and north of the equator. So out of the six continents in the world, there's only one that has full decriminalization, that's Europe. After I have my victory at Privy Council, I will have decriminalized two other continents, North and South America. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> That's immense. Mm. Yeah. Um, Guyana is the last country on the South American continent to have this law. So my victory will lead to decriminalization in Guyana. So I will have decriminalized South America. That, I mean, that it's just, wow. Yeah. And... You know, I think, like I said, I'm a big dreamer. So what's next then? A number of different things. I think, as I said earlier, what we in the West need to recognize is that people in the global South do not have the same relationship to human rights that we do. What do you mean? We don't have an understanding of it. You know, if 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 you are a black straight man in Port of Spain, Trinidad, you do not have the same relationship to your citizenship or your human rights, you know. So for me, to start an organization that is purely LGBT is not the point. I have to lift everybody up with me. So that's what this organization is going to be looking at. It's going to be looking at human rights as a whole for every citizen. You know, the death penalty, funnily enough, the death penalty is another big issue in, in the global south. You know, we still have the mindset of hang them high, you know. So having those conversations about how the death penalty impacts on how you as a society see each other, right. that's a conversation that's not happening, right? Because politicians want to reintroduce the death penalty because it appeases a, a, a community that is saying, oh, well, you know, crime is out of control, hang them high. Nobody is fighting against it. And strangely enough, my, my victory, the way that I have won, will impact on the death penalty as well. So, <laughs> Wow. Yeah, so watch this space. I tell you, you, <laughs> you have no idea. Uh, Justice Rampasad, the high court judge, he really made his, his, his name with that judgment. I mean, even thinking about the words just sent a chill down my spine yeah. that he wrote. It just, yes. And I'll read them to open the show. Yes. Just. No, it's a huge moment. And you know what was interesting? Justice Rampasad is Indo-Caribbean. Over 50% of the population in Trinidad are Indian from the subcontinent. And he's Indo-Caribbean, and he's also a Hindu pundit. So he's a religious man. Right. You know, he's a Hindu priest. So... Uh, At the first case management conference, uh, he said, uh, I have to put my hand up. I know that religion is going to be thrown around in this courtroom. I'm not going to have my my courtroom turned into a pulpit. I have to say I am a Hindu pundit. I have certain beliefs. But all of this needs to be left at the courtroom door. And my lawyers, you know, said to me, if you want if you think he's not going to be fair, you can get rid of him, you know? And I said, no, I want him. Mm. My intuition just said, he's the man for this job. And he didn't let me down. He really stood for humanity. And that that was the thing in the courtroom. I think there wasn't a, a dry eye in the house I hearing those I words. Mean, imagine, to be, yeah. imagine being there. Yeah, it was. 
So you, David, as in David and Goliath, you've, we're on the verge of the liberation of 55 million people. You're about to pick up the gauntlet again to, to continue moving it forward. What can we do? What would you like Busy Being Black listeners, and indeed, because you know we're listened to all over the Caribbean and South America and the African continent, what would you like queer black and brown people to know? Well, I think, you know, I, I, I know people really don't get that I do this alone. You know, it, it kind of seems insane to people that, you know, one guy did this. You know, it just seems far too big for people to, to really get their heads around, particularly as it grows exponentially into other countries and other territories and and the legend of it grows bigger, you know. Uh, so the thing that I want people to come away from it with is, is your own self-identity and self-worth and courage in your own beliefs, you know. I had so many knockbacks on this. I'd, there will be a book coming which I will reveal all then. I can't now because I'm still in the process of, of the law. But uh, some of it, it's really crazy stuff, really crazy stuff that went on. And uh, there were moments where I lost my way, you know, where I would go into Soho and lose myself in drink and whatever else was going mm. because it was the only way to cope with how heavy it all got. You know, when you're sat in a flea bit hotel hiding in the bathtub because you're petrified somebody's going to break down the door to kill you. Thinking about David Cato in Uganda, you know, hammered to death in his own home. I was literally at points so terrified that I, I slept in the bathtub in the hotel because it was the only place I felt safe. And I got a phone call from the U.S. Embassy saying, you know, you have use of the private jet, just call this number and we'll fly you off. British government did nothing, might I add. So, you know, I think what I want people to come away from my experiences, I'm very lucky that I, I had so much put into me that hardwired me for this job, you know. I, I don't expect anybody else to be anywhere near this kind of level of engagement, but there are small things that we can do. And I don't think we imbue the small things with enough power. Because mm. mm. if you have, it, yeah, if you have enough small things happening, it becomes a big thing. Yeah, and everyone, everyone always talks about like these big grandiose gestures, right? Coming out, building out, and I'm guilty of it, right? I'm building my own platform because I need to tell our story, or at least I need to help facilitate our storytelling. You know, and my dreams are big, and they're grandiose, and they feel scary and terrifying. But actually what I'm learning is that it is these small victories, it is these small steps forward that no one else can see. Absolutely. Right? The, the developmental, the foundational work that we do within ourselves and with the people closest to us that are these tremendously impactful 
if, if, if only for our own emotional liberation or salvation. Absolutely. You know, uh, <laughs> at the uh, play uh, two nights ago. Name uh, the play? Oh, it's called uh, Sticks and Mangoes, and it references my case, and it tells a story of a, of a, of a black Trinidadian family here in the UK watching what's happening oh, back home in Trinidad. Okay. Brilliant. I mean, if you, when, it, when it has its next run, I, I, I hope you'll, you'll, you'll promote it. But um, when I was there, I, I make a point of taking pictures of all of us because a lot of white organizations, white funders, white communities say we don't get involved. We don't do things. Things are not happening. Um, they always say we're putting stuff there for you, but you don't take part in it. It's for a reason. You know, we're not there unless we are, you know, in the driving seat and uh, we feel safe in that space. Mm. And... I think that's one of the big things that we need to to start driving more, you know, creating our spaces and supporting them more. Hmm. I think a lot of these spaces are not being supported in totally. the way that they should. And I, I, I feel that uh, we are at a big turning point now. I think Brexit has been a wake-up call for all of us that uh, things are not nice out there and that we have to fight. It's not, the fight is not over. Mm. It's far from over. Far from over. But, you know, a simple thing like writing to your MP, he knows you exist and he knows what you're saying. If you don't do it, he's not going to fight for you, you know. And I'm, I'm, a, big, I'm a big person for that. I, I really think a simple thing like writing a letter to your MP has huge resonance. You know, write to him and say, oh, I heard about this Jason Jones guy. What are you doing for him? Mm. They're not doing anything. They've, the British government has done nothing to assist me. Nothing. That I'm not surprised about. <laughs> it's not funny, but it's kind of funny. Like, why, why on earth would Theresa May's government do fuck all for black people? They well, haven't so far. Well, they may have a coon in the, as a. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, they're not going to do something if you don't write a letter in saying do something. Sure. Fair. You know? Okay, touche. That's what I'm saying. You know, we, we have to let them know, oh, wait a minute. You know. Do you think there's an apathy in the UK? I think, I think that whole re reactive thing, you know, we keep waiting for stuff to happen to us before we do something. You know, you see it right across the whole spectrum of minority communities. You know, somebody comes to get the trans people and then they react. You know, I'd, I think if you had not been working over the past couple of years, speaking about the trans issues, you know, getting people, you know, a bit more knowledgeable about what trans means, who these people are, what they stand for, you know, of course it's gonna come as a big shock all of a sudden, you know, somebody starts fighting against it. We can't wait for people to throw bricks at us to then get active, you know? Wow, yeah. That's the, that's the big problem. You know, I, people, the big question people always say to me is, you know, why did you do it? And I said, because I could, and I just did it. I just got up off my ass and I did it, you know? I'm not gonna wait on somebody else to do it. Nobody else was doing it. So if you are not seeing things happening in your community, in your environment that you would like, Get off your ass and go and do it. Nobody's going to do it for you. Mm -hmm. You know, that whole we, not I, let's switch it around and say, you know, I for we. You know? Oh, I like that. 
That's what we need to start looking at more. Because the power of one, I've proven it. One man can change the world. I have proven it. So I don't want to hear anybody's bullshit. Right? Yeah, very touche. Get off your ass and go out there and, and get, get active. Do it. Nobody brought this to me. Nobody. I had to go out there and pound the streets. And you fought for it tooth and, and nail. And I fought for it tooth and nail. I gave everything up for this. Everything. I've lost my family, most of my friends. I have no life. This is my life. This is what I do. And until I have that Privy Council victory, it will be what I do. But I just knew that nobody else was going to do it. You know? You are remarkable. <laughs> I don't know about remarkable. I just think... Uh, I mean, that's quite objective. <laughs> <laughs> somebody, somebody said to me in a, in a, in a recent interview that I'm, I'm, I'm incredibly stubborn. And, uh, well, you have to be, don't and you? And you have to be. And you're not here to be. And I'm not this here to be This isn't Jason Jones's best no, friends race. Exactly. <laughs> Fuck it. I don't give. A, I don't care what you think about me. You know. Brilliant. What I stand on is what I achieve. You know. That's that's what I'm about. What I stand on is what I achieve. Yeah, that's what that's what I stand on. Not not about my character or how you like me or how personable I am or. Yeah, that's not. That's nothing. God, say that again. I think busy being black listeners need to hear <laughs> that. I stand on what I achieve. That's what you should be standing on. You know, not who's around you or or you know a piece of paper from a from a university or, or any of that. What have you achieved? That's the bottom line. And and that's subjective as well, right? Yes, so you can decide what those achievements and what of success course, looks like to you. But course. what are, what are you doing? How, of course. How are you moving forward? Of course. And you know that feeds back into you know the whole thing about busy being black. You know, what have you achieved by being black? You see, for me, being mixed race, black didn't just come to me. It Fair. wasn't handed no, to me. No, that's a good point. Yeah. You know. I had to earn that shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it, uh, there's no kind of me walking around bandying about that, that stuff. You know, I have stood for my community and I continue to stand for my community. Mm. You know, so people know, oh, yeah, you know, Jason. Yeah, because I've learned that blackness is inherited and it's earned. Oh, yeah. I had to right. earn it. Yeah. I did earned. not inherit it. I had to earn it. Because well, I, what I mean is that it's inherited in that. At James Baldwin says two things, or said two things. Your crown has already been bought and paid for. Just put it on your head. <laughs> and our title to blackness has been bought and paid for. Mm. Yes. 400 years. Yeah. <laughs> right? More. Yes. In some cases. So that's what I mean by inherited. Yes. So there is a blackness that's inherited, but in many cases, we also have to, at the same time, earn that title. Absolutely. Still. Totally. Absolutely. You know, it. it uh, one of the things that I, I spend a lot of time doing now is engaging with young people of color, you know, queer or straight, wherever you're from. For me, that is where the legacy needs to go. You know? Handing over the baton. I mean, as Whitney sang it, you know, I believe the children are our future. <laughs> and the children have no no guidance. You know, our our queer, young queer black community, who are they looking to now? Who? We don't have anybody anymore. You know, in, in, my, in my period, you know, I had Baldwin. You know, I had all these you know, amazing you know, black men predominantly. But outside Nina, you know, I had, I had a, a quite a wide range. But now it just seems like the elders are either very conservative 
in their in their ideologies, or very old fashioned. And working with NASA. And, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and a little bit a little bit afraid of engaging with with the 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 young. I think that's also another big issue. You know that generational gap grows wider. It totally does. And. You know, I, I really fight to stay on top of things like Instagram and Twitter and what's going on in that whole cyber world because I know that's that's where the community is now. Mm. You know, it's no longer where we used to go to, you know, um, sound, sound shaft, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's where community happened, you know. Now it's all in cyberspace. Yeah, all so a lot of my constant communication with youth is is there, you know, and I learn from them tremendous things. You know, one of the most empowering things for me about what I do is the response I get from young people. And it runs a gamut from, from you know, thanks to some people attacking me. You know, some young people are just like, you know, well, you know, why are you pushing this thing? You know, I don't get what you're yeah. doing, which is fine. I engage to explain why. But I also get the 15-year-old who was going to commit suicide until he saw me on television. You know, I get those messages, too. So... Yeah, I kind of have no time for the dinosaurs. And I have no time for people who constantly are looking for the negatives in trying to move things forward. If you're going to constantly focus on what the negatives are, you're not going to move anywhere forward. So I'm, I'm one of these incredibly annoyingly happy people that I'm always kind of like looking for the, you know, the silver lining. You know? And I know it annoys people. And I know that the fact that I dream so big is just like out of most people's yeah. sphere. Also, how dare you? Also, how dare I? <laughs> also, yeah. also. There's also that. The thing about dreaming that is scary both to talk about, but that is also scary for other people in receiving is I think it's challenging. That's the big that's the big problem. How dare you dream yes. and speak of dreams yes. that are so immense. Yes. Why aren't I dreaming like that? <laughs> and yeah. I feel that, you know, yes. like yeah. sitting in front of you, I'm honored, yes. but I'm also like 55 fucking million people. Yeah. I, mean, that, I mean, I do actually hope to have that kind of influence, but yeah. wow. Yeah. You know, you know I, that whole dreaming big thing, it's, it's, it has become so negative in our culture, you know, that, you know, Unless it's dreaming something along celebrity lines, right. then we don't have it in our in our lexicon. You know? Yeah, it doesn't seem attainable. No, actually, <laughs> no, no, absolutely not, yeah. absolutely not. So you can do X Factor, and you know, Britain's Got Talent, blah blah blah. You know, but that's where we become blinkered. We think if you dream big, it has to be something that is very media focused and people will know, right. know about it. Instead of changing the lives of the people around you. You know. Or I, as one of the options, rather. Exactly. I don't want to be Changing yourself. You know, changing oneself, I think, is the biggest dream you could have. <laughs> and none of us do that. You know, I, every New Year's Eve, I do mirror work. I will write something onto my mirror that for the next 12 months, that's what I want to achieve in myself. So um, in 2017, just before I was about to file the case, I wrote, I deserve success. Wow. One year later, I got it. So, you know, that manifestation of your dreams happens. 
and we don't give that power. You know, it seems all very airy fairy, and you know, it's like you know, you, some some white woman is going to come out in a caftan and say, "Oh, manifest your dreams right on a mirror." No, it works. It really works. Speak to the universe. Speak to yourself. Yes. Tell yourself what your truths are, and also your faults. Yeah, of course. You know. <laughs> Yeah. Oh God! Listen, I, you know <laughs> I make no bones about it. When I have a lost weekend, mm. I—that's it. She's off. Yeah. All right. Yeah. But I give myself that, you know, because I know I've done enough work, the month before, two months before, three months before, that I am just going to mm. lose myself. Mm. In whatever mess I find myself, <laughs> it's like a holiday. Yeah, sure. You know, <laughs> but I know it's losing myself, yeah. and I know that's important that I have to leave breadcrumbs to find my way back. Wow. Come Tuesday morning. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. So those those internal conversations, we don't have them enough. You know, we don't speak to ourselves and speak to our truths and speak to figuring out who we are. Before we begin, the end, as it were, because you know I ask all my guests the same question. I just want to say thank you for something personal as well. Um, Last year at Nash Paragon's Let's Talk Queer POC, you acknowledged me publicly after what had been a very terrifying time in my life. And I want to say thank you for that, because I think I said thank you at the time, but it's really resonated with me. Mm. And it was, I needed to hear it. So thank you for that. That that meant a great deal. you know, I um, I have a very big mouth, <laughs> and I say what uh, what's in my heart and what's in my mind at the time. But uh, I was, you know, watching what happened with you. You know, for me, of course, very emotional. But the the big learning that came for me as a as a queer man of color was about how we speak to each other and how our culture has become a little bit too toxic. I felt very strongly with your experience that it's a conversation that we need to have, especially queer men of color, mm. you know, about how we how we speak to each other, you know. And I, I have definitely lightened up a, a lot. I'm a lot more loving because of you, so thank you. Thank you. Um, to close, I ask all of my guests the same question. What do you hope for? My hope is that people come away from this experience and my achievements empowered and understanding that uh, you can change your little corner of the earth. You really can. You know, it's not impossible. Nothing is impossible. I think I've, I've shown that. If if I can achieve this with my huge arsenal that I was given by my ancestors, my incredible background of ancestors from C.L.R. James, Nina Simone, Helen, you know, my father, gosh, he, he would love to hear this now. He passed away uh, just after I filed the case. I saw him in, in hospital about three weeks before I was about to file the case, and I, he couldn't speak. I told him what I was about to do, and he smiled. So, you know, we have all been imbued with incredible gifts by our ancestors. It's time that we step up. 
You know, where are our writers? Where are our theater performers? Where are the people directing our culture away from this constant stream of drivel? You know, and where are our rights? And well, well, you can't have rights if you have no culture. If you don't understand your internal culture, where you come from, that power, then no, of course not. Of course, you're not going to know what your rights are, how to achieve them. So you hope for, you know what? I don't live my life like that. That's why this is such a difficult question. Mm. You know, it's uh, it's not something that I consciously have in the front of my head. John Amici said in our conversation, he's not a hoper, he's a doer. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> he, he said it better than me. <laughs> you know, I, I have so many things that I'm working on that hope doesn't come into it. You know, I work so hard to make sure that they're successful that, you know, somebody said, good luck walking up the steps. I said, I don't need it. You know? <laughs> yes. yes. And I don't because yeah. I've done my homework and I've worked like a, like a dog to get the success. So luck and hope and these things don't come into it. I mean, for me, I do hope that people come away from this feeling a little bit taller. You know, mm. I, I I was saying to somebody recently that I have a, I have different um, ways of walking, you know, and has a lot to do with uh, the space that I'm in, but more importantly, where my head is at, you know, and I don't walk tall enough a lot of the time, you know, mm. Preach. particularly in, in London, you know. I'm six foot four, so I stand out. So I hunch so that I don't draw attention to me, you know. I mean, as a feminine-ish queer man, you know, it, it I do get the wrong attention a lot. So I hunch and I try to kind of, you know, melt into the background. But, um, you know, sometimes walking tall really changes your mentality. Well, you've made me feel tall oh, today thank you. and many times before today, in fact. Thank you. And I'm sure our listeners will feel the same. Well, that's what I hope. I hope I, I empower people to walk tall. Jason, thank you so much for sharing this space with me and, and for sharing your story. It's an honor to not only bear witness um, to your life and to the lives, of our, lives in our community, but um, just to share this moment with you is, is an um, honor. It's Thank my you. pleasure. It's my pleasure. Thank <laughs> you. And, and much love and, and power to everybody listening. Hi, this is Liam Rizen, and as a proud gay Trinidadian, I never thought I would have had that moment, the moment where my nationality and sexuality intersect in sheer celebration. To see the pictures of my friends, the people I love, the people I grew up with, my family, the people that look like me and sound like me, celebrating and crying with joy outside that hall of justice, the building I would pass every day after school as a boy, just radiating in their beauty and queerness. Nothing prepares you for that feeling. And that's all because of Jason Jones. Although he walks in the power of queer Caribbean activists, he gave us something no one else has before, and that's validation. We all thank you, Jason. And my friend Josh Rivers, inspiring me even before he was busy being black. This platform he gives to queer people of color is nothing short of remarkable. 
Busy Being Black is the podcast exploring how we live in the fullness of our queer black lives. Thank you to our partners, UK Black Pride and Blackout UK, and to you, the listeners. Remember this, your support doesn't cost any money. Retweets, shares, ratings, and reviews all help, so please keep the support coming. Finally, thank you to Anthony Giles, a queer black Grammy-nominated producer based in New York City for these bomb-ass Busy Being Black beats. Ashe. I'm Anushka Astana, and this is Today in Focus. We're bringing you general election coverage every day from Hartlepool. I mean, the government talk about left behind towns and left behind places, and actually that presupposes they were ever at the same starting point. To Belfast. I'm old enough to remember getting on the bus and them coming on with sniffer dogs to find out if there were bombs under the seats. We're talking to people and not just politicians to really get to the heart of this election. Subscribe now wherever you download your podcasts.